0: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book in your Bible. As we think about this wonderful book of Leviticus, I've often wondered what kind of images does the book of Leviticus bring to your mind? What kind of images does the book of Leviticus bring to your mind? Well, my answer to that is laws and heaps of them. If you read the book of Leviticus, you're going to find a lot of laws. God's giving heaps of instruction. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, well, what do we do with all of those laws today? What do you do with those? It presents a bit of a nightmare for interpreters because you you, you think about it. Should we apply all of the laws in the book of Leviticus word for word today? Should we? I mean, for example, Leviticus chapter 20. Here's here's just one, okay? Leviticus 20, verse 9 says, For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, if everybody on planet Earth actually followed what God says there, would there be any children alive today? You and I would not be sitting here. We'd all be dead. Because every one of us have broken this law, and our parents rightly deserve to have killed us for it. So the obvious answer is no, we should not obey all of the laws we find in the book of Leviticus today. Well then, some people say then, well, does that mean you just ignore all of the laws? Just ignore them. No, that's not right either. We shouldn't do that. As the New Testament says, the law helps us become conscious of sin. Even the Apostle Paul said, how would I even know what coveting is if God hadn't told me? So if it hadn't been for the law, we would not have known what sin is. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law is a good thing, okay? Well, you ought to praise God for it. So we have on the one hand then, the law exposing our sin. We know what, for example, what coveting is. We know what lying is and stealing and, and so forth, because the law reveals those things to us. But then, on the other hand, the law commands it. it it's it, and it has many commands, and it's preparing the way for the solution to our sin. It, it shows us our sin, but it's also preparing the way for the solution to our sin. You say, well, what's the solution to our sin? Well, here's the good news. The solution is Jesus Christ. The solution is Jesus Christ. And if you're, if you're not seeing the connection there, stay with me throughout the book of Leviticus here, and I think it'll make sense. And what I want to do is encourage you, first of all, before we get into this, encourage you, take a moment, uh, maybe this week, all right? If you don't say you're going to do it this week, you probably never will. So let me just ask you to do this, this week. Commit to reading the entire book of Leviticus in one sitting. You say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. (laughs) You can watch a movie for that long. So you can read the book of Leviticus, all right? It takes about three hours, by the way, if you read as slow as I do. It'll take you about three hours, and it's one of the best things you'll ever do. So I want to encourage families as well. If you have a family... Uh, read God's Word together. By the way, that includes the Old Testament. Don't ignore the Old Testament. Uh, it's certainly one of the better things you can do. It's better than sitting around the television, certainly, of course. But you need to be aware that the book uh, of Leviticus is not structured like other books, which is partly why some of us get stuck when we're reading through the Bible. We, we kind of get stuck in this third book. It's not like Genesis or Exodus It's structured differently, and Leviticus is one of those books that doesn't contain a lot of story. There's not much narrative. Mostly it's it's containing instructions that God gave to Moses when the Israelites were were camped around the bottom of Mount Sinai. The people had remained at Mount Sinai there for about a year. Uh, They had already received the Ten Commandments, which is part of the law, and and you say, well, how do we know what this book is about? Well, if you, if you were to look at the very first verse and the last verse, you get an idea what the book of Leviticus is all about. Look at Leviticus 1, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, we'll just stop there, all right? So that'll help you to understand where this book is heading. God speaks to Moses. He's about to give him all kinds of laws, instructions. Well, go to the very last verse of Leviticus. By the way, I always encourage you to look at the first and the last part of a book. It will help you to get the big picture of that particular book. And, of course, this is no exception. If you look at the last verse, chapter 27, verse 34, says, These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. There you go. That's what the book's about, in a nutshell. There's several truths that this book teaches us that are applicable for us today. These aren't just for the nation of Israel. So as you read through the Old Testament and, and see laws that were addressed to Israel, please understand, don't just chuck them out the window and say, well, that was for Israel. It has nothing to do for me today. Wrong has everything to do for us today. So I want want you to see some of the things and and, uh, truths that the book of Leviticus teaches us. The first truth that we want to address is this, that Leviticus teaches us that God's people are distinct, we we are unique, we're to be separate, And, and because of that, you and I should live holy lives. That's what the word holy means, by the way, distinct, unique, separate, don't just think of of sinlessness. It's far more than that. So let's, let's get the big picture of Leviticus here, okay? The book's divided into several major sections. I've got four sections here. Uh, chapter 1 through 7 describes the various kinds of sacrifices the people had to make. And again, all of those sacrifices point to Christ, who is the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The chapters 8 through 10 are focusing on the preparation of Aaron as the high priest. Of course, Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest. Chapters 11 through 15 outline the purity laws. They show us that we cannot be pure. We need someone who was pure to be our substitute. And chapters 17 through 27 detail various laws about holiness. God is holy. You and I are not. We need someone who is holy, of course, Jesus Christ is holy. So, that's how the book breaks down into its four parts. But I want to begin with a story that that actually shows up in the middle section. One of the very few stories, in fact, in the book of Leviticus. And it's devoted to a special group of people. You can guess who that people is. A special group of people in the nation of Israel... And these people had special demands that were made upon them by God. And, of course, this special group were the priests. We can learn something from these priests. By the way, the point of this is not... Okay, here, here's one bad rule. Here's what a bad rule of interpretation, if you will, that some people do. They take all of these things that were meant for the priest, and they say, well, you know... Israel in the Old Testament is really the New Testament church. Therefore, the priests in the Old Testament are the pastors for today. Whoa. That's bad interpretation. They're not following the rules of hermeneutics there. Uh, So please don't do that. That's not what you're supposed to do with this. So let me help you. I want to be a help. Here's some truths that we should learn from the priest. First of all, that the priest, we, we see the priest must be especially distinct they had to be especially distinct now there's again there's not many stories in the book of leviticus but there is a story and you can see a picture of it here on the screen it's a story about uh the sons of aaron nadab and abihu it's a striking story nadab and abihu were priests their father aaron was the high priest at this time I want you to notice what happened to these priests in Leviticus chapter 10. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10 in your Bible. Put your eyeballs on it. Don't take my word for it. Leviticus chapter 10. What we're about to see here is what these priests did and how God responded to what they did. They actually offered up unauthorized fire before Yahweh. It was unauthorized fire before Yahweh. And, I want you to notice how God deals with them. All right, Leviticus 10, verse 1. Follow along, please. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and El-Zephan and the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the holy house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. Notice how God ends there, verse 10. They were to be especially distinct. A clear separation, uniqueness, if you will, between what was clean and unclean. Now, what sense can we make of this story? Is is it just there for your amusement? Of course not. So what's going on? Well, understanding this story is going to help us to understand the book of Leviticus, right at the heart of of the people that God was creating, he placed a whole tribe, they were called the Levites. In fact, they were the ones, the tabernacle, remember, right in the center of the camp, and the Levites were all around the tabernacle. They were called to be especially distinct. They had to be ceremonially clean. They had to be physically whole. So the problem with Nadab and Abihu was that they actually failed to fulfill the very purpose that God had called them as priests they didn't act distinctly they did not obey God. remember it even said there they, they didn't do what God had commanded they had, they did what God had not commanded them it says in verse three or verse one sorry Well, the first thing we see is here that the priests were called to be especially distinct because they had special duties. Why why were they to be distinct? How do we know that they were to be distinct? Because God gave them special duties that nobody else had. First of all, they performed sacrifices. They performed sacrifices. When an Israelite brought an animal to the tabernacle to be sacrificed, uh, one of the things they would do, if it was, for example, a bull or... A lamb or a sheep, they would slit the animal's throat, and once that animal's blood was drained, the priest would carry the blood to the altar. He'd place the blood on the altar. He would place it at the base of the altar, and then the priest would take that dead animal outside the camp. And sometimes they would, um, if they did that, then they would burn it in order to demonstrate uncleanness. It was to be separate. So they performed sacrifices. The priest's other main duty was teaching. We also see that in chapter 10. Look at verse uh, verse 11. It says, it says in verse 11, "...that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses." So they were to perform sacrifices, but the, the primary duty, the main duty, was teaching. It was a duty we rarely think about, though. But it was a very important one. If we consider the number of all the people in Israel, which some have said may have been about two million people, most of the priests must have been involved in the teaching duties. Uh, didn't, wouldn't, you would not have needed as many there to work in the tabernacle. It wasn't that big of a place. In fact, it, it's actually smaller than this school hall if you include those rooms back there. So it's not that big of a place. You didn't need that many people performing the sacrifices. You would have needed more for the teaching duty. So the priests were called to be especially distinct because they had special duties, but they also received a special provision for their livelihood. Nobody else in Israel received this special provision for their livelihood. Only the priests. So after performing most of the sacrifices, not all of them. Uh, If I remember correctly, the sin offering, they were not allowed to eat. But the other ones, they were allowed to eat. So the priests, when they were involved in, in these sacrifices, they would eat the animal that was used for the sacrifice. God used that means to provide for their needs. And so this is how God provided for His tribe of priests called the Levites. You say, well, what did the other tribes do? Well, they they had to work for their food. They labored for their food. By the way, that's not to say the Levites didn't labor. Their labor was just different. And so the Levites' labor consisted of teaching God's Word and maintaining the sacrifices in the tabernacle. So God supported them through the sacrifices. We can see that if you look at verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. And Moses spoke to Aaron and Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons who were left. Here's what Moses said. Take the grain offering that remains of the offerings made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord, for so I have been commanded the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your sons due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. So the point there is God provided for the priest through these sacrifices. We also see, number three, that the priests were especially distinct Because they bore a special judgment. They had a judgment that nobody else in Israel appeared to have. For example, Nadab and Abihu, like every priest, was was held as a public example. They were a public model before the whole nation. They were to teach and be good examples of what it means to obey the Lord. Uh, Sadly, though, they decided to approach God on their own terms do their own thing even though God had not commanded them and so they received God's judgment and so if we learn anything from this particular story of Nadab and Abihu we must learn that we you and I anybody cannot approach Yahweh however we please God must be approached according to his ways he's holy he's unique he is distinct and by the way, the Lord even warns Aaron, the high priest, who is the holiest considered the holiest man in the land, that he cannot enter God's presence however and whenever he pleases. And you say, where is that? Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 2. Chapter 16, verse 2, says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time, into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So it's a very serious matter then, isn't it, when it comes to worship. It's a serious thing to worship this God, the only God. These priests were dealing with very serious matters And they would be seriously judged. Well, let's not lose sight of the big picture here, okay? As we walk through the forest of Leviticus, we could easily get lost. Uh, Let's not do that, okay? So let's try to get a bird's eye view, all right? What is this all about? Why did God have so many laws and rules and all this information? What is all this about anyway? Well, ultimately, the priest... And their activities point to Christ, who, of course, is our great high priest. And that's one of the beauties of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews marries up with the book of Leviticus. For example, in Hebrews chapter 8, it says this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent or tabernacle, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he he mediates is better. Why? Well, since it is enacted on better promises. Well, we've seen that the priests were to be specially set apart. They were to be distinct. Yet, if we want to understand what Leviticus teaches us, we need to see something else. So here's what we need to see. We need to see that all of God's people must be distinct. Not just the priest in the Old Testament. But all of God's people must also be distinct. In this book, we find an account here of an unnamed man. We don't know who he is. He's not a Levite who received a a very swift act of God's judgment. You can turn to chapter 24. Turn to Leviticus 24. You say, what's this guy's sin? He's not a a Levite. He receives God's swift judgment. So what was his sin? Here's what he did. He blasphemed the name of the Lord with a curse. Blasphemed the name of the Lord with a curse. And let's take a look and see what the result of that blaspheming was. Look at chapter 24, verse 10. Verse 10, Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Let them all who heard him say, or lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak. To the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes in the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Now go down to verse 23. Verse 23. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel. And they took outside the camp him who had cursed, and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. I've got a question for you. Do you realize why it's important for God's people to be distinct? Do you realize why it's important for you to be distinct? Now, here, here's, here's my opinion. If we're not distinct, if we're not unique and separate from this world, then we're lying about who God is. We're giving a a false opinion of who God is if we are not distinct. How do I show distinctness, you might ask. You say, okay, if I'm supposed to be distinct, how am I supposed to do that? What does that look like? Well, first of all, God's people show their distinctness through cleanness and ritual purity. Through cleanness and ritual purity. Notice what God says to Aaron in chapter 20. Look at chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 22. Chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments. And perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you. For they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples." You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. You shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, or holy there is distinct, you should be holy, distinct to me, for I the lord am holy and distinct and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine now this is a theme that's by the way it's found throughout the whole pentateuch the first books first five books of your bible nowhere is it found more than the book of leviticus though in fact over 50% of the occurrences of the word unclean in your bible over 50% in fact, is found in this one book alone. When you see something that often, you ought to sit up and take note of it because it's telling you what its theme is. This basic idea that everything is divided between clean and unclean as well as between holy and common is running throughout the book of Leviticus. You say, why? Well, let's make two observations. Why is this such a major theme? Well, number one... It shows us that God is indifferent. It, sorry, it shows us that God is indifferent about nothing. That's what I meant to say. God's indifferent about nothing. He cares, in other words, He cares about everything. All of life matters to God. So, in this, God taught the Israelites that life involves making distinctions and that they should never assume that something is morally neutral. There's nothing morally neutral. So this whole argument that, that some Christians like to use about Christian contemporary music, that, it's, that music is, is amoral and neutral, is a load of rubbish, to put it frank. Music is not neutral and amoral. There is nothing that is neutral and amoral. So what if you viewed your life like that? What if you actually viewed your life as God sees it, that there is nothing neutral and not moral what would your life look like would your life look different possibly so it shows us that God's indifferent about nothing but number two God cares tremendously about how he is worshipped why would he bother to spend a large portion of the Bible talking about these things one of the reasons besides the primary reason of pointing to Christ is to show us that He cares how He is worshipped. You cannot come to God on your own. God refused to allow His people to worship Him in the way that the other nations tried to worship their gods. In the Old Testament Bible times, fertility rites, cult prostitution, child sacrifice, all of these kind of things played a big part in their worship. God said, I will have nothing to do with that. You will not worship me through those ways and means. And so as you read in Leviticus, you actually find anything that had to do with things like sexuality, birth, or human death, would actually make a person unclean. In other words, it made a person unworthy to worship God, and they would have to be made clean in order to come into his presence and worship him. You say, where's that? Look at chapter 22. I'll give you an example. Look at chapter 22, verse 4. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word. Chapter 22, verse 4. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron, who is a leper or has a discharge, shall not eat the holy offerings until he is clean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has had an emission of semen. Okay? Okay? In other words, God's saying there are things that will make you unclean, and you cannot worship me until you're made clean. That's the point. Don't get caught up in the details, all right? Uh, Don't get lost in the forest here. Let's not lose sight of the big picture. So we have rules here. And, And through all of these rules, the people hopefully began to grasp that God has a concern about purity. Purity was was fundamental to entering and remaining within a relationship with God. You can't get to God without purity, and you can't remain in that fellowship without purity. So how do we show our distinctness? Number two, God's people show their distinctness through holiness. Not, Not just through cleanness and ritual purity, but also through holiness, God's concern for holiness is found again in the book of Leviticus. It is, again, a major theme. uh, And and we can see that because in in the last half of Leviticus, particularly chapter 17 through 27, the word holiness pops up a lot. And uh, there's some wonderful instruction in this section. Let me just give you some of that wonderful instruction. We don't have time to go into depth in all of those chapters. Let me just give you a few things. Look at uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19. Look at verse 14. Chapter 19, 14. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now that's, that's interesting. I mean, ask yourself this. It talks about deaf there, right? How are the deaf going to know if you actually curse them? How are they going to know that? Unless they're really good at reading lips, they're not going to know, are they? Most people aren't very good at reading. They're not that good at reading lips. But God says he cares if we curse people who can't even hear what we're saying. What's the point in that? Well, the point is that God knows. (laughs) That's the point. God knows. All right, look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now, think about this. Many people tend to think the Bible shows some kind of special regard for the poor. And and in some ways it does. In many ways it does, in fact. Yet the poor are not to be set beyond the reach of justice. You understand that? Yes, we should look after the poor. That means you and I should look after the poor. Churches should look after the poor. That's important. God says to do that. But that doesn't mean that the poor can just go do whatever they want and and break into people's houses, for example, and steal their stuff and expect to get away with it. Leviticus Leviticus contains many things here that, that are worth careful reflection is, these are just some examples of showing how god's people were to be holy again let me ask you a question did you know that this book contains jesus favorite verse did you know that that's how important this book is it contains jesus favorite verse Well, at least I can say it contains the verse that Jesus quoted the most, and that's why I'm saying it's his favorite verse. If you look at chapter 19, we find the famous words, chapter 19, verse 18. Chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Apparently that's Jesus' favorite verse in all the Bible. He used it a lot. So what's the point here, though? Why 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 is it used here? Why is it used in the New Testament? Because love is the root and the summary of the law. Paul said that in Romans. And that's how Jesus understood those laws. Love is the root and the summary of all of those laws. Jesus even summed it up by saying, in the New Testament, to sum up the entire law, He said, The greatest command is to love God, and number two, to love other people as you love yourself. The whole law is summed up in that. It's all about love. So the command to love our neighbors here is demonstrating that holiness involves not only refraining from committing sins, but it's also taking care not to omit obedience. It's not enough to not just go and murder your neighbor. Okay, I, I think we can all agree, I hope. I don't need to prove to you that you shouldn't go and murder your neighbor, right? Murdering your neighbor is not showing love. Is that obvious? Yes, I hope so. Okay, God's saying it's not enough to just do that. But you need to go above and beyond that. You need to go the the second mile, so to speak. There needs to be kindness and love shown to your neighbor. You can't just ignore the guy and not murder him. You've got to show love. We need to be marked by holiness. Now I hope this is your understanding, that every Christian should be marked by holiness. God calls us to be holy as he is holy. A child of God should do what God values. God values holiness. Now, one category of sin that often surprises people is the category called unintentional sins. The book of Leviticus talks about unintentional sins. In other words, what I'm saying is these are sins that were committed in ignorance. You, you, you did something or didn't do something, and you, you just didn't know that that was a sin. Okay, we all do those things. God calls them unintentional sins. For example, if you look at chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 2, God talks about this. Chapter 4, verse 2, The Bible says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, then it proceeds to tell you what you should do about that. There was a sacrifice for unintentional sins. We're not going to get into those details, but I want you to see that there are some sins that can be committed in ignorance. You, You just had no idea. Now, this is significant because it shows us that sin is not fundamentally subjective. And by subjective, I mean it's, it's not just a feeling. Sin's not something you do against your own conscience. Sin is something that's objective. There's a standard, if you will. It's something you do against God and against His laws. God has laws, and you, if you break those laws, God calls that sin. Therefore, ignorance is no excuse, like, sadly, too many people think. Ignorance is not bliss. All right? So realizing that we can sin in ignorance should provide great motivation, then, for us to actually get some knowledge, then, doesn't it? God says if you can sin in ignorance, you don't want to be ignorant, then, do you? So then how do we get the knowledge? Well, my friends, here's how you get the knowledge. Search God's Word to know his will. God has revealed his will in his word. Look at chapter 19. Here in chapter 19 verse 2, we have what we could possibly call the motto of Leviticus. Chapter 19 verse 2. This is probably the motto of Leviticus. Look look at the in fact look at the end of verse 2. Chapter 19 verse 2 it says you, God says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's distinct. God is unique. God is separate. and God says, you're to be the same. That's the motto. And so if you are a Christian, you must understand the importance of holiness then. And if you don't, then... Well, let me put it this way. If you don't understand the importance of holiness... Don't be like too many Christians in our world. They, they continue to hold on to the name Christian while not caring what God says about holiness. Do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll give you some examples. In other words, do not confuse other people about what it actually means to be a follower of Christ. Are you giving the right opinion of God to the world around you? We as Christians, the Bible says, are to be holy... And we as a church, by the way, are also to be holy. So you know what that means? It means, good news, Baptist Church should have a reputation in the community of being holy. A reputation that's both comforting and is also unsettling to our neighbors. And that's why church membership is important, by the way. Those of you who aren't members, please listen closely. Membership is important for many reasons. But let me just quickly talk about this. Membership is important. It distinguishes us. God says we are to be distinct, unique, and separate. We're not to be like the world. How is the world supposed to know who the Christians are if if we're not distinct? One of the ways we can show our distinctness is through church membership. So if you're attending a church regularly then you need to consider becoming a member. It's important that we not just go through life just playing church like too many people do. Church is serious. It's important. Too many people take it too casually. They're not committed. That's not glorifying to God. So here's what God wants you to do. Number one, commit yourself to faithfully attend the church's gatherings. And that includes all of the church's gatherings. Too many Christians think that Sunday morning is the only one that they have to attend. That's not the truth. All of the church's gatherings are important. Number two, integrate yourself into the lives of other members. Integrate. okay? Don't stay off here all by yourself. Integrate with the lives of other members. And three, obey the one another commands. You can't obey those one another commands, and there's heaps of them, if you're not integrating with the other members. And then last of all, Commit yourself to a church, a one local church, not the universal church, but one local church. Commit yourself to that group and formally announce that you're committed to those people. By the way, God intends a vital aspect of our evangelism to be our corporate witness. But one of the ways you can, you can evangelize is through the, the corporate witness of the church. We see through our love for one another, the world will see that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you are his disciples, by the love that you have for one another. This book teaches many truths, but let's move on to the second truth, okay? Quickly move on to the second one. Leviticus also teaches us that God's people are sinful, so they should offer sacrifices, if you're sinful, God says you need to offer sacrifices for that sin. And that's what we can see in chapter 9. We'll turn to chapter 9. In chapter 9, Aaron is, has started his, uh, his priestly ministry. In chapter 9, it shows us how it went for Aaron as he performed his first sacrifice. How did it go? Well, here's his first sacrifice. Look at chapter 9, verse 22. Verse 22, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burn offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burn offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, They shouted and fell on their faces. So they saw their sin and they offered sacrifices. Leviticus teaches that sinful people need sacrifices. Why do God's people need sacrifices? By the way, we still need sacrifices. And the answer to the question of why do sinful people need sacrifices is because you and I are inevitably going to fail. We, we are not holy. We're going to sin. We do sin. We are sinners. And so this is why the, the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus is providing all of this instruction for offering sacrifices in the tabernacle. It's, it's showing that sinful people need sacrifices. Why did they bring the sacrifices? Well, I should, no, I, should, I should say they brought the sacrifices because of sin, but what did they bring? Well, if you read all of those sacrifices, they didn't always bring a bull or a lamb. Sometimes they'd bring other things. For example, they might bring food. Uh, some, the people who are richer were supposed to bring something that would cost them more, like a bull. They would bring the finest animal, by the way, not, not the one that was about to die,? <laughs> okay. Not the one that had a, a blemish or you know, a bad leg and it couldn't walk anymore. No. God says, "You bring what you can afford, and you bring the finest of your flock." Animals that had no defects. And for example, look at chapter 22. Chapter 22. Chapter 22. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, You shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Let's stop there. It's clear that the sacrifices were to be without blemish. No defects. They're to be valuable in and of themselves. To be costly for the people giving them. The sacrifice was Literally, it was a loss of their own goods, their own possessions. And it was a destruction of life, too, wasn't it? I want you to notice what God said in chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 11. Chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul's for it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. So the sacrifices had a purpose. God wasn't into just killing animals for no reason. They had a purpose. Sacrifices were to teach the Israelites that sin brings death. And that the only, only the, by the shedding of blood could there be atonement. Do, do you see how this was all pointing to Christ? So once the sacrifice was brought into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the individual making the sacrifice would then lay their hand on the head of the animal. And by doing that, you say, why did they lay their hand on the head of the animal? They're identifying with the animal. They publicly identified themselves with the offering. They were... They were literally saying, what happens to the animal should happen to me. And the reason for that is because of my sin. This animal is about to die, and they would lay the hand on the animal. I'm identifying with this animal. I deserve to die because of my sin. And then the animal would die. The priest would kill it. They would slaughter the animal. The priest would take the blood. They would Again, they would sprinkle the blood on the altar. That was all a picture of substitutionary atonement. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. The animal took the person's place. We deserve to die because of our sin, but something took our place. Again, do you see how it's all pointing to Christ? Christ is our substitutionary atonement. We deserve to die, but Christ took our place when he died on the cross. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a few verses from Hebrews in a moment to show you that. But there's, there's something else I need to point out to you. is that Some sacrifices were not regular. In other words, they were irregular. They were, they were to be regularly scheduled events. Yes, that's true. Some were to be daily, some were weekly, some were monthly, and then there were some that were done once a year. Why? Why did God have all those? Read the book of Leviticus. He had a whole timetable of sacrifices. And God did that because God knew that people would sin. They needed sacrifices. And so behind this whole sacrificial system was an assumption then, right? And the assumption is that people would sin. People needed sacrifice to cover their sin. They're going to keep on sinning. And that's why God tells the priests that keep that fire burning, they had daily duties, and one of those was to keep the fire burning all the time. Well, does this whole process shock you? I mean, do, do, when you read the book of Leviticus, do you just skip it because you find it so shocking? Do you find this hard to deal with? Well, you're not alone. If you find it shocking, it's because it's meant to shock you, it's meant to shock us. Leviticus is clearly teaching that you and I deserve death. That's one of the points. We deserve death for our sins, and we also need a sacrifice. And to find the substitute, then you have to go to the book of Hebrews. All right, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 says, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You, again, my, my friends, do you see how what's happening in the Old Testaments pointing to Christ? He's superior. He's better. In fact, he's the best. You don't get any better. So what's the application? Well, we need to forsake our sins. We need to turn to God through Jesus, placing our trust in Christ's sacrifice for our sins. How do we do that? Well, let's get practical. Well, let me just get practical for a moment here. Here's here's where gathering together as a church is extremely helpful. This is why God tells us in Hebrews 10... Just not that long after those verses, he says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Instead, meet together so that you can stir one another to love and good works. So regularly gather with a church. Learn from God's Word. Establish relationships with other Christians. Find someone who can hold you accountable and to be edifying to you. Read books that discuss the nature of sin and what God actually requires of you. There's several in the church library. When you're done with those, I can recommend more. So, what do you need to do? Avail yourself of opportunities to get under good teaching. If you want more than just Sunday and Thursday nights, well, I can I can direct you to other places. So, what do we need to do? Do what Romans said. Romans says, keep killing sin, or it's going to kill you. Well, let's let's move on. Leviticus also teaches that sinful people need atonement. Not only do we need sacrifice, but we also need atonement. If you're not sure what atonement means, if you break down that word atonement, I I find it really helpful. It means at-one-ment. At-one-ment. In other words, you and I are enemies of God. We're estranged from God. We need to be reconciled to God. And God makes the atonement so we can be one at one with Him. That's what atonement is. So we've got a problem. In fact, our biggest problem is sin. Because of that sin, something has to be done, or we're without hope. And that's where atonement comes into the picture here. And by the way, we're, we're, we are never told how sacrifice actually affects the atonement. We're not told that here, but we know it does. We know it does. So we are made at one moment as a result of atonement. Atonement is how two separated parties are reconciled with one another, so they're now one. Atonement's absolutely necessary for you and I to have the relationship and fellowship with God that we need. Otherwise, we're estranged from Him. We're, we're separated from Him. Sin has split us off from God. The atonement brings us back together. And Leviticus shows us this clearly, that that people need atonement through the Day of Atonement. There was actually a day, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is literally the Day of Atonement. It shows the need for atonement. In in fact, you can see it in chapter 16. Chapter 16 introduces this annual day of fasting, Uh, The Jews call it Yom Kippur. And on that particular day, a special sin offering was to be offered. And and by the way, this one was for the whole nation. And only on this day could the high priest enter the presence of God, and he would enter into the Holy of Holies, where uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was, that most holy place. And he went in there to represent the whole nation, all of the people. Here's a picture of a priest standing outside the Holy of Holies. The veil would separate the the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And so the high priest would, first of all, before going in there where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat, he had to make atonement for himself. And then he would make atonement for the nation as he would go into the Ark of the Covenant. Just think with me for a moment, all right? Put yourself in in this guy's sandals for a moment. Put yourself in his sandals, okay? It's a strange ceremony when you think about it. Very strange ceremony. What did this guy actually do? What did he do? Well, here's one of the things he did. He would bring blood into an empty room. Not totally empty, but for the most part it's empty. It only had one piece of furniture in there. Not a very big room. And by the way, this room was always that way. It never changed. It was always to be the same. Nobody else was there. And then he would pour blood on the mercy seat, which was on the Ark of the Covenant. Who could see that blood? He's the only one in there. Nobody else there. One piece of furniture. He pours blood on the mercy seat, and nobody sees it, right? Wrong. God saw it. The only person who saw it was God and the priest, of course. God saw it, though. D- does that help you to understand what he's doing? Have you ever wondered, by the way, as you think about atonement, uh, maybe this will be helpful. Have you ever wondered where the idea of scapegoat came from? You heard the word scapegoat? We we use it in, in relation. We even use it in politics, and uh, uh, sometimes we even use it in sports. You know, the guy... The guy who's, who's kicking the penalty at the end of the rugby game, right? He goes and kicks the penalty and he misses. He, he suddenly becomes the scapegoat for his team. He missed the penalty. It doesn't matter that there's how many other guys playing on his team. What part, did they have anything to do with the loss? Of course they did. But he becomes the scapegoat. So you, you can see we use this terminology today in many ways. But it, it originally goes back to Leviticus, And it comes up on the Day of Atonement. The high priest, what he'd do is he'd do what the next uh, slide shows you. They'd actually bring two goats. One of the goats was going to be slaughtered. The other one was lucky, if you call it lucky. He was providentially preserved. And the priest would place his hand on that second goat. He would confess the sins of the whole nation. And then that goat was to be let go. It, It got to live. This goat was called the scapegoat. The one that got to live and go out into the desert, he was the scapegoat. You can see this in chapter 16. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. And when he had he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. The scapegoat, if you will. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So that's what they did. And nowadays, we use it in all kinds of non-religious ways to say that that we're we're what are we doing? We're placing the guilt of a rugby team or or a political party. All the guilt gets on that guy. And it came from the Day of Atonement. That's what a scapegoat is. The Day of Atonement was held not just once, but it was annually, and it was to be done over and over and over again. All the religions offered sacrifices when things were were, were going well. And on the other hand, God gave Israel a regular calendar of sacrifices and and they were to do this whether things were going bad or whether they were going good. Why did he do this? Because it's showing a continual state of sin. They were in a continual state of sin, just like you and me. Each year the sacrifice was made. Each year the the Israelites would would, uh, continue to kill a goat and let one free. They had to do this every year. What is, what's all this showing us? Well, ultimately, Christ's sacrifice shows us our need for atonement. It's all pointing to Christ, who of course became our atonement, made us at one with God the Father, and so His sacrifice shows our need to be made at one. Have you ever wondered why the high priest's atonement was insufficient? They had to continually do this. Some were done once a year, some were done every day, some were done once a week or once a month or whatever. Why did they have to do this? Because it was insufficient. Why would God tell them to do this when He knew it was insufficient? Of course God knew that. Well, the book of Hebrews helps us to understand why. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 1 here. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, God says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, then why do it? God knows it's insufficient. God knows it can't take away their sin. So why did He tell them to do it? Again, it's pointing to Christ. It's showing that one day a lamb would come, a perfect lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 22 here. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. My friend, are you eagerly waiting for him? He's coming again. The Bible says he will receive you to himself if you're a believer, that where he is, there you may be also. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Well, as you can see here, we have a hope. We've heard some bad news, but there's really no good news without the bad news, is there? And the bad news is we're sinners, but the good news is there's a hope, and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and who makes the ultimate atonement for our sin. So our hope's found only in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the spotless Lamb of God. So my friend, since you are a sinner, and there's no doubt about that, the Bible says everyone is a sinner... Here's the good news. Since you're a sinner, Christ is the atonement that you need. Christ is the one who can make you at one, reconciled to God the Father. So what do you need to do? Trust in Christ's righteousness. Not your own. Not your own good works. Because Ephesians 2 makes it clear it's not by our good works that we get to heaven, but it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody else can atone for your sins. You can't atone for your sins. Nobody else can do that. It's only in Jesus Christ. So if you want to find mercy, do you know where you need to go to get it? My friend, go to Christ. He paid the penalty for your sin. He's already done it. And all you need to do is trust in Him. believe that He's done it for you. And only in Him. And you will find mercy.